But if you're diminished and um, in in resolvence and the and the essential fatty acids, you won't clear that well, and you won't kill bacteria as effective. Uh, as efficaciously as as you could, if you were well oiled. <laughs> Welcome to the Metagenics Clinical Podcast, where natural healthcare practitioners can hear innovative, cutting edge information from leading experts from around the world. Hi everyone, welcome to Metagenics Clinical Podcast. I'm your host Nathan Rose, and with me today from Boston is Professor Charles Sirhan. Welcome, Charles. Welcome. Thank you. So you're a lipid researcher, and we'll get into your your background as we um, unravel this, but we're here today to talk about inflammation and your um, discovery of these novel uh, lipid mediators that are derived particularly from omega-3 fatty acids. But Mm -hmm. um, just you've been in this area for about 40 years and about 523 um, peer-reviewed publications at my last count. so can you just give us a bit of a background on your you know, uh, history with looking at fatty acids? Where it started in the 80s, it was all about sort of prostaglandins then, and then we'll mm. get into your, I think, sort of pivotal moment from this, uh, mm. these lipid biomediators in the 2000s. But just just take us back to the sort of evolution of um, your understanding. And Okay. So um, I should first say for your audience, you could probably hear this is a New York <laughs> City accent. It's not a, <laughs> it's, it's not a, a Boston accent. Uh, I'm originally from uh, New York, uh, uh, and I went to school in New York, and, and I was a uh, biochemistry major as an undergraduate, and then went to NYU um, at the medical school, um, in New York City, and it was really in that uh, setting of, uh, of, uh, of exposure to uh, pharmacology and experimental pathology got, that really got me interested in, um, in thinking about chemical mediators of inflammation. And having um, been, I would say, uh, attracted to chemistry and biochemistry, uh, the chemical mediators in, of inflammation really uh, sort of turned me on. The 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 link to uh, I would say fatty acids and lipid mediators was not sort of at the forefront of my my uh, thinking. Um, the field was really focused on the pharmacology and the actions of prostaglandins in regulation of the acute inflammatory response, largely due to the, you know, the seminal discoveries of uh, Sir John Vane, you know, finding that the non-steroidal anti-inflammatory drugs block prostaglandins. And then, of course, the complete structural elucidation of the biosynthesis of the prostaglandins, um, by Ben Samuelson and his colleagues at the Karolinska Institute really uh, focused on arachidonic acid as the precursor and sort of piqued my interest um, very much so. So when I finished school at at, uh, NYU, I had an opportunity to, I had met uh, Professor Samuelson earlier at the Marine Biological Laboratories in Woods Hole Massachusetts, and um, during a summer of, of uh, doing research, and um, we lined up the possibility of my going there and finishing uh, my studies early in, in New York. So when I was at the Karolinska Institute, I, I focused uh, on the control mechanisms in, and this is uh, in the 80s, uh, just after Samuelson received his Nobel Prize, um, we focused our attention on what controls the acute inflammatory response. And that's how the lipoxins came to be. And that's how we sort of uh, began the structural elucidation of those molecules. I got recruited back to uh, the States and, and to Boston, and I set up my own laboratory at Brigham Women's Hospital in Harvard medical school. And the mission then became to try and understand the function of the lipoxins. And then we had a very unexpected finding. 
that aspirin, which was known to block cyclooxygenases, actually triggered the biosynthesis of uh, aspirin-triggered lipid mediators. And this changed my thinking about what we thought at the time was called endogenous anti-inflammation. We, we were thinking these are endogenous molecules that would control the acute inflammatory response. Uh, that was not met, I would say, with a lot of enthusiasm in the 1980s and 90s because uh, pharmaceutical companies were really focused on trying to figure out ways to block uh, lipid mediators of right. inflammation because they believed wholeheartedly that all the lipid mediators that were produced were pro-inflammatory. So in thinking about and learning about uh, self-limited acute inflammatory responses, it became very clear that there was a temporal change in the lipid mediators between initiation and resolution of inflammation. And the resolution and initiation were described many years ago. And I can go into that with you with more detail. But is that good enough for Yeah, yeah, absolutely, yeah. So, the, um, so they, they were familiar with this idea of resolution, but uh, my understanding is they thought it was sort of a, a passive process. And a lot of the, yeah. as you mentioned, all the pharmaceuticals are really about trying to um, inhibit this initiation so right. can, can you just i suppose compare and the contrast the the old view of resolution to now this new yeah. understanding yeah okay so um i think that's a critical point that you picked out there nathan so uh visualization under the microscope of the tissue uh enabled pathologists i would say were the first to recognize that Inflammatory infiltrates would resolve, meaning that the white blood cells would go away. And in the textbooks of pathology, a, um, a, the ideal response was uh, that an acute inflammatory response was protective. And then after we were protected from the insult, that the leukocytes within traffic away out of the acute inflammatory site of action, the exudate, uh, the pus, if you will. And that's called a self-limited response. It would dissipate on its own. Now, all the chemical signals, and of course, that makes sense, right? Because if you, if you, every time you got a, a, a think about it, it's like a pimple, you know, a pustule on the skin. Every time you got a little a uh, pustule, you would melt down if there wasn't uh, a, a self-limited response, right? Now, some people, of course, get very bad acne. We're not talking about that. Um, but you can think about it along the same lines, that if an acute inflammatory response is not <laughs> contained and self-limited, it could actually go to full sepsis, right? So, that response was uh, visually known for a long time. And if you read in the textbooks or if you asked uh, scholarly academic pathologists, you know, what happens after all the leukocytes come in? What happens to all the chemical mediators? And the prostaglandins and the leukotrienes and the complement, for example, components, uh, many of the chemokines, they were all well-documented to recruit cells into the site. And people thought that they would dilute or just passively dilute away those chemical signals. And then the cells would return and the tissue return to homeostasis. So what we learned is that that actually was a biochemically active process. And that process uh, was mounted and instructed the cells to exit and providing very, let's say, precise uh, robotic signals, if you would, to tell yeah. them where to go. And uh, so that's a change in thinking. And then that led very rapidly to the notion that 
a failed resolution would lead to chronic inflammation. And then that led to the concept that, well, we could do the add back as we do in experimental setting, and we could make therapeutics that would stimulate as agonists mm. uh, the resolution response in individuals. So that's about it in a nutshell. Okay. Yeah. So that's yeah. really, to me, uh, inflammation up until now has been about blocking pathways, but this really, to me, says we're actually stimulating um, the transition. So I wanted to look at, and my understanding is it's the, the macrophages, one of the, the primary cells that um, orchestrates this transition from initiation to resolution, and they have this, um, I suppose, opposing phenotype, this M1 and M2. Can you just describe the, the, that transition and that phenotype and how that plays a role in resolution? Mm. Well, um, let's back up a second. So sure. the the initial, um, the macrophage is, of course, the big eater. And the neutrophil is, is a smaller cell type physically, but it, it's engaged in, is the primary responder uh, from peripheral blood. So when the first responders die in... Uh, in the battle of the bacteria, let's put it this way, and some of them do, uh, they become, uh, the debris is formed or they can undergo apoptosis, right? They can. So yeah. the, the clearance of the debris and the, and the clearance of apoptotic cells, that was also known and visually seen uh, under the microscope, and uh, one of our colleagues in that area made that discovery. His, his name is John Saville, and we wrote a review with him early on. Now, our role in there was finding that the resolvents, these these mediators that we first uncovered, uh, along with the lipoxins, could actually stimulate resolution was the finding that they reduced neutrophilic infiltration. They limited it to make it self-limited so that you wouldn't get too many neutrophils to a site, which would lead to potentially uh, tissue destruction and amplification of, uh, of that tissue destruction and, and ongoing then further inflammation. So the macrophage was critical in this process of a ferrocytosis, clearing out dead debris. And, the, and it is that is another key function of the resolvents. So it has this dual prong. And that one action took us a long time to figure out. <laughs> Embarrassing. In <laughs> hindsight, it's very easy, you know, <laughs> but that you have this one signal so think of there, there are many resolvents that we've uncovered. There's several major pathways, many different structures that we've elucidated over the years. But you can take each molecule separately, and they have this one function that dominates them all. Right. That, uh, that signature uh, function is to turn off neutrophilic infiltration and, to, and then, on the other hand, stimulate ephericytosis. And in the 90s, the way we got into that, even before thinking about going to the macrophage and making that connection, okay. we, we saw that on monocytes, there was a, there was this dual signaling started, that there was a non-phlogistic, a non-fever-causing activation of the monocyte, which was hard to understand in the 90s, okay? And at the same time, the the pro-resolving mediator was stopping neutrophils. So it's a stop signal for neutrophils and then a go, but non-inflammatory go for monocytes. But of course, monocytes differentiate to macrophages and monocytes also come in different flavors as recognized today, like M1 and M2. And they're, importantly, they're involved not only in host defense, but also in, in repair of mm. tissue and wounds. And so the M1, to get to your question, and M2 are the two extreme 
poles of the plasticity of macrophages. One thought to be, you know, host defense uh, and then become the angry macrophage, uh, type one, and type two is thought to be the resolving. But this is a really gross uh, yeah. in the literature. It's really thought you should think of them as a continuum um, of great plasticity between these phenotypes. The key here, and the reason why I emphasize that, is because the the resolvents and the SPMs, their other key function is that they stimulate the M1 phenotype to switch to the right. M2 phenotype. So they, once they appear, it's a feed-forward mechanism. Yeah. They start recruiting more cells to become more involved in clearance and wound repair and uh, return to homeostasis eventually. Or I should say a new level of homeostasis prior to the first challenge. Sure. Fascinating. Yeah. All right, so let's uh, dive into all these lipid mediators. So historically, a lot of the, our listeners have, have learned about the, I suppose, the elongation and desaturation of the polyunsaturated fats of uh, linoleic acid and linoleic acid. And you mentioned um, lipoxins, which actually that comes from arachidonic acid. So we've learned as far as up as, as far to like EPA, DHA, and arachidonic acid. Um, yeah. and use those nutritionally or, you know, the, the view typically has been uh, more EPA, DHA, which is great, but maybe um, try and avoid the arachidonic acid. So um, a couple of questions here. Arachidonic acid also provides some of these um, mediators, but can you also describe what happens to these mediators downstream now? This is what you have identified with your team, these downstream metabolites. Uh, okay, <laughs> let's see if I understand. Yeah, sorry, it's a long question. Yeah, uh, what I would like to say, and to and we can you can come back at yeah, me sure. with another question, is that what we first of all, all these fatty acids are essential and important, and arachidonic acid is important precursor to the prostaglandins, and more importantly, to platelet-derived thromboxanes. They play a critical role in blood clotting and, um, and also mounting the initial steps in the inflammatory response in terms of vasoregulation. So they shouldn't be viewed as bad guys versus good guys. And that's a little too simplistic mm. a view. They're physiologically needed. Like anything else, if they're, if they're working within their physiologic role, they're, they're, they're playing a, this important role in, in, I would say, the transition from initiation to resolution. So EPA and DHA, people thought... Uh, based on biochemical studies on cells and culture, that there was a simple competition for the enzymes uh, that make prostaglandins and you reduce their production. Uh, and that this was responsible for an anti-inflammatory action. And that had been proposed in the literature and the anti-inflammatory quote unquote, actions of uh, EPA and DHA have been known for a long time, since probably the 1970s. But <clears throat> I would say today we would view this as a counter-regulation, that these pathways evolved in parallel. And the reason why I say that is because all the way down in phyla, you go to fish themselves, we found that... Uh, EPA is converted to resolve into the E-series and DHA to the protectins and the resolvents of the D-series and the macrophage-derived mediators in, in parallel to the arachidonic acid products that are produced in marine organisms. So in evolution, um, we don't know their function all the way along the the, the the evolutionary chain, but they're highly, I would say, uh, conserved at the molecular level. So that I think today is uh, is more of um, I think we want to enrich. If you're thinking about nutrition, enrich in, in, um, in polyunsaturated 
uh, fatty acid diets and not all uh, N3 versus N6, but that these play very precise molecular functions at the cellular level. Does that yeah, absolutely. Sound? Yeah, and that's that's we recently I recently did a podcast with Dr. Bill Harris who echoed the same words that um, they're both mm-hmm. essential and we should no longer view arachidonic acid as the the um the bad guy. And um, yeah, so my take is that you need the lipoxins to help sort of essentially kickstart the yes, you're going to make the the pro-inflammatory medias the the prostaglandin thromboxins, yeah. but you, you need those yeah. to kickstart the the resolution phase. Is that correct? Yeah, that's absolutely right. Okay. That's that's what we found. Um, and then, but now, so that's an inflammation. But then there's other systems that have really intrigued us. For example, in human breast milk, there's high levels of arachidonic acid, high levels of EPA and DHA that was known for quite some time. But what was not known is that there are high levels of resolvins and lipoxins. In, in healthy breast milk. And yeah. that's been replicated by a few different uh, labs around the world. And it's really uh, interesting because if it was all black and white in the sense that, uh, you know, just good or bad, then, you know, you're certainly not going to put this into, the, <laughs> you know, the, the a drug delivery system of uh, mother's breast milk to <laughs> newborn. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> right? So, you know, it's uh, – so I, so I think we have a lot more to learn. It's a, and, and, and having spent time on determining the structures of each of the resolvents have opened up identification of the receptors for these molecules – and that's illuminated signal transduction pathways and has also told us a lot about where they may function, not just on, on the precursors. And so, for example, there's been really impressive papers published on the receptors in brain and, and, and how they, they may be involved in behavior and, and serving as a wow. anti uh, depressant action of resolvents, for example. So it's although our entryway was in through inflammation and resolution and setting up the experimental systems to make those identifications, the, having the molecules and then having them out there and commercially available and collaborating with a lot of colleagues, it's opened up a different terrain in terms of uh, thinking about host defense and uh, clearing bacterial infections, things that we couldn't really anticipate without having empirical data. And some, I should point out, there's some really exciting results and randomized uh, clinical trial results that come right from Australia, from uh, Anne Borden and, and Trevor Moray's uh, group. And yeah. they're both professors there. And I think you got a chance to meet. Uh, I've been in contact with yeah, uh, Trevor Moray. So he's excited yeah. that there's um, SPMs now available in Australia. So yeah, hopefully you might, you might be yeah. able to collaborate in the future. Um, That's excellent. Yeah, so, so this, you know, ha- having more people uh, do the investigations and add more, I'm, what I'm trying to tell you, you and, and your audience is that what we know today is it's obvious it's going to grow. We have the molecules, the mediators, we're going to learn a lot more. And when there's a lot more clinical experience, we'll really see where the dust settles and where they're really going to be important for clinical treatment and, and also for wellness. I, I have a big uh, interest there. And um, yeah, sorry. Sure. That's all right. So yeah, okay, great. Um, so just to sort of clarify, You've now helped develop these exogenous SPMs, specialized pro-resolving mediators that we can um, supplement to patients. So if, um, there's been a lot of interest in uh, comparing these to fish oil in a sense. So is the people uh, struggle or fail to adequately biosynthesize SPMs? Can you describe the, the roadblock in a sense from just conventional like um, polyunsaturated fats? Why? we'd want to start thinking about um, SPMs? Well, on a purely um, functional level, the precursors, the fatty acids, uh, have to get converted to uh, the bioactive molecule. And the, the 
when we do side-by-side comparisons, for example, on single cell level of, let's say, just a, a neutrophil or just a macrophage, the, the molecule, the resolvin or the SPM is active where at equimolar doses, the fatty acid is not. Okay, so really showing that you need to get conversion. And that in a in vivo setting, so that's at the single cell human single cell level. And those are in all publications. And we've done that with microfluidic devices and our colleagues over at Mass General Hospital. Daniel Aremia is a engineer, clinician, scientist there. Um, when you go to dosing in animal studies, then it becomes a thousand, ten thousand fold difference. In other words, you can give the fatty acid, it will, in many cases, be converted to uh, the resolvent, but the potency for the endpoint is very different. So, in chronic inflammation, uh, what we've seen in some of the human samples that we've uh, looked at is that there are um, there's downregulation of some of the biosynthetic enzymes. We looked at uh, single cells, single human leukocytes functionally, and if you do at equimolar concentrations, the fatty acid, let's say EPA or DHA, compared to the EPA derived resolvin or uh, the D series resolvins, they clearly act on those cells to stop trafficking or enhance phagocytosis, whereas the fatty acid doesn't do this. It has to get yes. converted. So when you translate that to uh, an in vivo experiment, it becomes 10,000 times difference between the potency of those molecules. In other words, you have to add milligrams of uh, of the essential fatty acid to, you know, to compare to the actions of a resolvin. But of course, depending on the endpoint that's being measured. So I kind of look at this a little bit like if I wanted to, and, and uh, yeah, um, if I wanted to improve the production of testosterone, would I load up on cholesterol? Hmm. I don't think so. You'd be getting a lot of natherosclerosis yeah. there, maybe. And and so the direct so so by analogy, you know, we would like mimetics, and we would like something further down and more committed in the pathway, a direct pr- precursor, like in the case of seventeen HDHA. And seventeen HDHA is a precursor for D-series resolvents, it's converted by leukocytes locally, but it also has its own actions that have been reported by the groups um, uh, in in, uh, British Journal of Pharmacology, actually, in arthritis models of pain. So that's how I approach that. Does does that make sense? Absolutely. Um, And they have identified certain conditions um like metabolic syndrome obesity and not that it's a condition but aging there's a, a tendency for the mm-hmm. those enzymes that do the convert the the precursors to the bioactives that seem to be diminished or downregulated in in those conditions well the we my personal experience is in aging because we look directly with uh, one of the fellows in my group who's now uh, in sweden her name is uh Hilder Onadot, we published uh, a paper looking at the NIH aged mice and found, um, and I had known, I should say, that those aged mice were known to have an enhanced inflammatory response on challenge. And what we found is that they had not only an enhanced inflammatory response, but they had a diminished resolution response, which was surprising. So, we could then take their leukocytes and expose them to resolvents and then add back or add back the resolvents themselves into this animal model. And we could actually see a, a better regulated response. We could also turn back, you can think, the, 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 the hands of time yeah, in that wow. model. On the obesity 
uh, front. Th that's work of a former fellow from my lab who has been studying that. His name is John Claria, and he's oh, in yes. Spain and has got very nice uh, data. In, um, and he was a fellow in the lab in the, in the 90s and then came back uh, on sabbatical and um, just a few years ago. And uh, we looked into adipose tissue and, and he had found that the resolvins regulate the adipokines themselves. So, you know, the, the view now is changing that uh, fat was thought to be inert uh, adip adipose tissues, but some adipose tissue actually becomes inflamed and that becomes a nidus to actually release more pro-inflammatory mediators. Um, but the resolvins, uh, when added back, counter-regulate those. And he's been able to show in uh, studies in his lab in animal models that they reduce obesity and insulin-induced uh, uh, say, uh, resistance. So that's a very complicated mm. area. Um, but I, and my colleague, Matt Spite is, uh, is an associate professor in the center here. Who's also a former fellow, uh, is, is studying, uh, vascular actions of resolvents and focused a lot on obesity. And so I think there's a lot more to come. And he's working with people at the Jocelyn's, which is one of the foremost uh, diabetes center. Um, and they're focused on metabolic syndrome here in the Harvard system. So I'm excited that there'll be yeah. new information coming. P potentially yeah. so many applications for these. Um, what about also looking at diseases and like tissue concentrations or, or cell concentrations? Um, have they identified lower levels of these resolvents in certain conditions? Yeah. I mean, that's almost in every uh, inflammatory chronic <laughs> condition we looked at, uh, you see lower levels in the case of Alzheimer's, for example, in inflammatory bowel disease, Trevor Morey studies in, um, in acute, uh, acute, uh, kidney disease. Um, he's you know, been looked at levels. And then the idea is, can you f give the precursor uh, and enhance them. So I guess one of the, I guess, questions for the field is, um, from the therapeutic standpoint, is do, do you want to use um, a marine oil or do you want to use something like an SPM active? And um, I think those studies have to be done on a side-by-side -side basis. But what we've seen in our ex experiments and now recently published by uh, uh, studies in the New England Journal uh, by the Ameren uh, Corporation, supported by them, if you looked at the um, uh, ethyl ester of EPA, there's pretty remarkable results reported for lowering um, uh, cardiovascular yeah. disease. Yeah, well, no, cardiovascular disease, apart from triglycerides, and the incidence of cardiovascular disease. I think the separation of uh, inflammation and lipids uh, is really an important one. And the clinical community is really becoming aware that you can separate these now. And um, the triglyceride lowering was, of course, one one you know, are the indications for using uh, omega-3 and fish oils. But, you know, n now we know we want to re reduce the vascular inflammation. And uh, the reason why I point to that particular study is, is the, that's a GMP purified material. Uh, and I think one has to be very cautious in talking about marine oils in general because each company's preparation is, uh, it's not really standardized that well. There's a very, uh, we've seen big differences in the percent of yeah. EPA and DHA and sometimes other other lipids that uh, one would not want to have in. 
their preparation, like uh, fish steroids and so forth are present. So, yeah, so that's one reason I think why the the, the, uh, SPMs that are produced, uh, um, at least it's more streamlined. Uh, It's their sort of... uh, a step along the way, I, I hope that development uh, gets better and better in terms of purity of, you know, and, and also concentrations. Uh, okay. Yeah. As yeah, years sure. go on. Absolutely. Sure. It evolves. Um, from another perspective, animal models of administering exogenous SPMs, what sort of disease states have they, they looked at there? Oh, well, from my laboratory, we, we started with uh, peritonitis and also an air pouch on the back of a mouse. So the air pouch is a model of, uh, of the inf- inflammatory exudate that can form not only in the skin, but also in uh, virtually every organ that uh, and it's been used by the pharmaceutical companies to look at potential new antiarthritic drugs because this pouch that forms is like the synovium, yes. right? That you get pus like around the joint. So there we have uh, really efficacious actions, pico nanogram uh, potency. Uh, we moved up then surprisingly to infectious disease models uh, using live E. coli and uh, and uh, uh, staph and strep, and and we were surprised to see enhanced clearance. Mm. This is the other point that I think is very important: enhanced killing, enhanced clearance. That when the immune system is is well fueled and has the right nutrients, um, it's uh, it, it it has the ability to clear very very clearly, but if you're diminished in, uh, um, in, in resolvents and the, the essential fatty acids, you won't clear that well, and you won't kill bacteria as, effic- uh, as efficaciously as, as you could if you were well-oiled, <laughs> if you want to put it that way. So that was a big surprise. And why? Because almost all the pharmacopoeia that's used to control inflammation uh, really become an issue uh, downstream in immune suppression. And that immune suppression, of course, leads to infection uh, in many cases. And some of the, even the most effective um, agents out there uh, mm. open up for infection. And there, I, that's why I'm so excited about the, 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 the future of the resolvents as they go forward. I, I, I hope that people recognize that as a unique property. Absolutely. Um, one area that we recently discussed this in a, a seminar series, and again, probably because we oversimplified things, was the M2 macrophages, um, uh, one of its functions in its, I suppose, extreme form is tumor promotion. Um, but I just, obviously, SPMs promote resolution, but um, from the data so far, it's obviously not going to, not that I can see, um, be you know, uh, carcinogen in the sense it essentially uh, helps with chemotherapy. So, what's your understanding of the role in, in cancer? No, no. Well, okay, I'm glad you brought that up because we have joined forces with a couple of groups that have been working in the in the cancer field for many many years, and we with this notion that uh, could the resolvents reduce inflammation that the cancer causes and therefore reduce cancer burden. That was sort of the hypothesis that we went on. on. And the, the lead investigator there, his name is uh, Deepak Panagrahi, and he uh, has been a cancer researcher and a, a transplant a doc. He was trained in transplant. The bottom line is that early on, every time we do an experiment, we could the results were really remarkable. They come back showing us the size of the tumors, and it was like, no, I can't believe that. They really shrink wow. down. But, but mechanistically, what happens is the following, is that around the side of the tumor in the matrix, there's a lot of debris that causes inflammation. 
If you clear that inflammation, if you clear that debris by phagocytosis, by a different brand of macrophage, this is now, it's not just simply M1, M2, because what you're talking about is the TAM, the tumor-associated macrophage, which is the macrophage ah, that's in the center right. core of, of a tumor. So the geometry here in vivo yeah. makes a big difference. So when you give resolvins, you're summoning in, you're, you're reducing all the pro-inflammatory mediators as markers, right? The cytokines and so forth. And you're, you're summoning in this phenotype of the macrophage that's there to clean up. And it's not the same guy as the tumor-associated macrophage. Now, the interesting question that I challenge your audience and scientifically mm -hmm. as well is whether or not, and this I hope that we get a chance to do this experiment with someone, whether or not the resolvins, if you isolated, here, here's the question, if you isolated the tumor-associated macrophage from a real tumor, in, in, a, in a mouse or in an experimental animal, if you treated it in vitro with resolvins, with SPMs, would you change the phenotype? And I'm willing to, to bet you do. So it might be another mechanism of how that might work if we had, if we had the big if is penetrance yeah. in vivo on a solid tumor, you know, so... Yeah, there's a lot. Fascinating. To do. Yeah, it's all about context. <laughs> I really like that. All right. Well, I'll, I'll wrap up soon. Yeah. <laughs> it's all. Yeah, I I would say it's all yeah, about yeah, when and where. Yeah, yeah. That that's what you want to think about and and in dosing. And the the good news about the SPMs, I think, is is that they are orally active, um, but they're also topically active too. Um, and and you were asking about the animal model, so all the topically active animal models like ocular uh. models and uh so uh we we started years ago with a very funny experiment well it was where we got people to really become believers because they could really see the result is if you had leukocyte mediated tissue damage in a mouse ear due to excessive inflammation you could put dye in there and you could see the pink ear turned blue, right? You wow. just leakage of the dye. And you can do it with fluorescence and it's all really cool. And, you know, if you topically add one of the pro-resolving mediators or one of the mimetic analogs that we made of them early on, you could block that and protect that. And you can protect that ear so the ear stays pink, right? So it's so <laughs> a blue ear in a mouse and a pink ear in a mouse. And it's very clear results and and at the molecular and cellular level that type of response is happening in the lung and the acute lung injury it happens in the periodontal disease it happens in the um uh, uh in the synovium leukocyte mediated tissue damage so you know the thing is i have to be very f frank and tell you that the concepts are evolving um, we're chiseling away, like, you know, sculpting these little molecules, right? Because we like doing that and because we want them to be helpful to people. But what's happening in the field concomitantly is the recognition of what an important role inflammation plays in many, in many, many diseases. You know, I just was lucky. I was attracted to studying inflammation from the very start, you know, and I just found it fascinating. I had great teachers and wonderful mentors and studying the vasculature and studying inflammation just seemed natural because it was rooted in my mind and in their minds in every process in, in uh, human health and disease. But that was not the perception of others. And it's taken me a lifetime to, to realize that. But now, I'm, I mean, now, you know, you're asking, we're on this call. Why? Because you're interested in controlling inflammation. Well, yeah. Um, <laughs> yeah, I don't think <laughs> luck's played much of a part. It's just uh, hard work and perseverance. It's amazing. Um, so just now looking forward, so we're, um, and it's a testament to your, yeah, perseverance because, 
you identified these a long time ago and they're only um, finally getting to the human clinical trials. What is on the horizon um, from a, a randomized control trial perspective? Well, the next publication up is is the periodontal disease trial, which was supported by uh, NIH, the National Institutes of Health in the United States. And there was run by uh, Tom Van Dyke, my collaborator um, in periodontal disease. And, and the, the results there, I'm told, I haven't seen the results, but I'm told that they look good and they're writing up the, the paper now. So that's where clinical trial is coming for the use of a mimetic uh, of a pro-resolving mediator. And um, other clinical trials, uh, I know that there are other companies that are working along those lines in clinical development, but um, I don't know who's close to uh, reporting clinical trial data yet. The big barrier there, uh, as you know, mm -hmm. is raising the finances to do those trials. They're just uh, enormously uh, expensive. Um, and so from the pharma side, that's for what people call the GMP material. And that's why taking this other route of, uh, I would say, uh, nutritional food or a supplement approach, it's a, it, it's, a, it's a good way to get us where we need to go um, therapeutically. Uh, I, as you can hear, I don't come from the school of, of nutrition, but I, I appreciate the value of nutritional approach uh, in general. So I, I think you could, you know, see uh, trials of, for example, uh, a, a pure EPA and DHA, where then you're topping that off with yeah. uh, an SPM. You know, and so I mean, I would think that would be a very exciting um, way to go. But you know, the the selection of indications is also very important in terms of stratifying the and getting the appropriate uh i would say patients in uh to test this hypothesis and um there i think it's really critical to have a good handle on the markers and the and the markers that we've focused on uh, is regulation of TNF-alpha and, and also IL-1 beta and a number of the cytokines. And keeping in mind the trafficking, I think this is absolutely critical that people forget a bit about the trafficking of the cells um, to the site, to the tissue, and then out their egress. So um, it's hard to take them into account in some of the clinical studies in, in real time, but you know we have to think about how to stretch to do that in the future. Sure. Because we have done studies, not at the not at the randomized level, but we have some, I think, really uh, very, I would say, uh, impressive studies that, that are far-reaching in their implications. And those are ones with uh, Derek Gilroy in... Um, in London, and Derek's been studying this blister model. Like I explained, that we used the air pouch early on uh, in the mouse years ago, and um, you know, twenty years ago to do to to interrogate the pus to see what was made. Uh, Derek has this blister where you can raise this with a suction cup a uh, small blister on the skin of healthy individuals and then insert uh, a attenuated uh, E. coli and get an acute inflammatory response, which is just like yes. a textbook, you know, neutrophils running in, edema, and so on. And the really cool thing is we could measure all the uh, lipid mediators and put the temporal sequence together. Uh, which just look like the animal model experiments. But the neat thing is he was able to do the add back and, and directly administer into the blister the pro-resolving mediators, and it stopped 
the neutrophil traffic and expedited the um, yeah return to the resolution return accelerated I would say uh, neutrophil. Well, that's exit. powerful. Yeah. Um, you've done a, a great job to describe to our audience today the the uh, effects and the the potency of these guys, and I'm looking forward to see what uh, unfolds in the future in the clinical trials. And we've just been and we'll follow this up this podcast up with some clinicians on their um, early use of SPMs. So it's great to get this really background information and, and clear understanding on how they work. And hopefully the audience appreciates the uh, you know, the, the decades-long long work you've done to um, help elucidate these mechanisms. Um, so I really, yeah. Th- well, I, 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 have to, I have to interrupt you there just by, I'm sorry, Nathan, but, you know, the, it's as, what I've discovered along the way is how many people it takes to really move yeah. things. And it takes a lot of people. And I've been very lucky. I've had very large program project grants and super colleagues. And yeah, it started with us, but it, it took a lot of people to carry the ball and to move it to the level it's at right now. And um, I mean, especially when you're talking about crossing that barrier from academic into translation and true translation involves manufacturing and all these other things that uh, as mm-hmm. academics we don't really think about um but i just had to say <laughs> that because i didn't want your audience to think it was a you know it was a one oh, uh, there's the reason why things are moving the noise out there now is because there's a lot of exceptional people making okay. contributions and uh, fantastic well you have okay. you have um been awarded a lot of uh, prestigious prizes in scenario so i think yeah you're certainly one of the the premier researchers here but yeah i agree and it's great that we're um yeah getting it into to clinical practice and starting to see um the effects there and hopefully we can feed that that back to the researchers to you know stimulate further um investigation thank you for listening to the metagenics clinical podcast Find us on iTunes and leave a review. Join our practitioner-only Metagenics Facebook group to be informed of new podcast releases, keep up to date with key industry updates, and more. Visit metagenics.com.au to find useful links and resources relating to this podcast and sign up for our e-newsletter.